0: From PRN, this is Peter Samuel. If you could start off first by just giving a one to two line introduction about yourself, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, my name is Taylor Martin. I'm originally from Arizona. Um, I went to medical school at A.T. Still University. Um, It's one in Arizona. So it was one year in Arizona and then three years in Chicago. Um, I then did my transitional year internship in uh, New York at Bassett Healthcare Network. And uh, now I'm a preventive medicine resident at uh, Johns Hopkins. I'm a, a first year preventive medicine resident, but a PGY too. Awesome. Um, and could you just share one interesting fact about yourself
0: or hobby that you do outside of medicine?
1: Yeah, I've recently kind of got interested in gardening. So last year I was like in upstate New York and uh, for the first time ever tried to just like garden outdoors. And now I'm in Baltimore. So I tried some urban gardening this summer. Um, I recently just bought like a raspberry pie. It's like a little modular uh, computer. And so I'm automating like a, in a little hydroponic setup. So that's, that's my new hobby I'm getting into.
0: That is awesome. Have you, uh, is there anything that you've grown that you've like really enjoyed eating recently?
1: So, so kale is like the best thing to grow because it can continue to grow and you can just keep harvesting it. Um, it's really fun to grow. It's a really beautiful plant. It's tasty. It can add to a lot. That's my go-to.
0: Nice. Awesome. Um, so many of our viewers might not be familiar with or know much about preventative medicine. And we just spoke about that earlier. Um, how would you define preventative medicine?
1: So so I agree, it's a hard thing to define. It's a very broad field. Um, there's a whole load of different jobs people have. I guess I kind of think of it as um, kind of split into three different parts. There's like a clinical preventive medicine aspect that we practice. There's public health, and there's uh, population health. Um, So kind of just speaking a little bit on the clinical aspect, it's like some primary care type stuff. So similar to FM or IM training, um, but a little less clinically rigorous. Um, People do urgent care, they do primary care, they do like travel clinics, occupational clinics, stuff like that. Um, So docs do that. They also work in, in public health aspects. So uh, working for the public health department, uh, either federally or locally. Um, and then there's this aspect of population health, which is similar to public health, but instead of treating the whole public, you're focused on a, on a specific population. So I've heard like some people describe preventive medicine or compare it to like pediatrics, they treat children, gynecologists, they treat women's health, preventive medicine, we're treating populations.
0: Thank you for that. Um... And how, do you, how does one pursue a career in preventative medicine? And, and I know that there are different avenues. You can kind of speak more towards maybe the the medical aspect if you want to touch on um, the other avenues as well outside of medical school. That'd be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a few, like you mentioned, Peter, there's a few ways to get into preventive medicine. Um, there's the way that I matched into it, uh, which is similar to all the other advanced programs during your M4 year, you, uh, you match into your, your PGY2 spot as well as, uh, an internship. Um, there's only a few of those right now in the nation. Most of the preventive medicine programs, uh, you apply to during your PGY1 year, uh, or you apply to it as just a second residency or it's considered a fellowship, um, about like 50 percent of people have previous full residencies so they're fm trained they're im trained general surgery trained um some of the more interesting specialties i've seen is like an ophthalmology trained doctor coming in doing this as a second residency um and then there's a few places like mayo where it's considered a fellowship so you're at a higher uh, higher level, um, and those, those uh, are the main ways in. You know, I think this is one of the a huge issue with preventive medicine. If they want to drive competitive applicants in, I think they should be increasing the amount of people that they can match straight out of them for. I think by the time you're a PGY one, most people are already locked into their specialties uh, and probably don't want to go through the match again. So this is something I hope changes in the future.
0: Definitely. And could you speak a little bit to maybe what your PGY one year looked like? I know that um, as, as a third year med student, I hear about a transition year, but uh, I don't actually, I, I know, you know kind of generally what it is, but uh, maybe go into specifics and if they're to do away with the transition year, um, would you just expect students to dive right into the residency um, right after medical school?
1: Yeah. So the, the, the transitional year internship, it's uh, it's like a mix Some surgery and medicine. Um, So where I did my uh, intern year, there was an IM residency and a surgery residency. So we'd essentially spend six months with the IM residents and six months with the the general surgery residents. Um, It allows for a little more kind of playing between both those uh, two fields in in your internship year. It also allows for a little, I think we had another block of uh, rotation. So it's uh, an enjoyable one, a lot of the advanced programs uh, can match into it. I know like ophthalmology, radiology, I think anesthesi- anesthesiology, um, they have the opportunity to do a transitional year. Um, doing an internship before the actual preventive medicine residency is, I think, really important. The The two years of preventive medicine residency, um, you do some clinical training, but it's more focused on systemic training and trying to figure out how yeah, you can cause change at a higher level or more upstream so i think that a year of it, some type of internship is really important to get a clinical understanding get your boots on the ground um type thing so you know you, you don't have to do a, a ty internship you can do a medicine internship you can be matched into a, a full surgery residency and then first year if you don't like it you know you can reapply and, and get into premed med that way so i think it's important um it's, it's, it's difficult it was hard uh it's worth it. And if
0: you could kind of share a little bit about what drew you to preventative medicine and why you chose to go that
1: route. Yeah. Um, so during medical school, uh, we rotated through a, an FQHC, a federally qualified health center um, in Chicago. And so this is an underserved neighborhood and this is outpatient type stuff. So we rotated there and then we rotated at the Cook County Hospital, which was then seeing all these these same patient population, but when they turned inpatient, we'd see them at the hospital. And there were loads of patients who were lost to follow-up for their chronic diseases that are easily managed in the outpatient setting. Um, But due to all these different factors, uh, they were lost to follow-up and then they end up at the county hospital, you know, getting worse health outcomes, uh, racking up huge medical bills. uh, And then that is handed downstream to the whole healthcare system, uh, increasing overall costs. So I was really frustrated uh, by that and um, wanted to address that at a a more upstream level. Um, So during medical school, I made a little triage algorithm that we implemented at the FQHC um, and it kind of turned into this automated chronic disease management tool. Um, So instead of a patient having a, take off work and find childcare for their kid and take a bus across the city all to just get their diabetes checked. You know, some of those uh, encounters can be done remotely as we're finding out now with coronavirus, a lot of them can't be done remotely actually. Um, So it's kind of helped facilitate that. Anyway, through that project, I uh, tried to expand this into a a company. It didn't end up working. We lost steam before we could uh, really get uh, the revenue rolling in, but I met some really interesting advisors who showed me this whole world of clinical informatics and preventive medicine and uh, you can address these upstream things uh, in the specialty of medicine that's kind of focused on that and the whole training is focused on that so that's what got me really excited about it
0: that that's really interesting yeah uh could you share a little bit more also about like what your plans after residency are where do you see yourself kind of um, working? Do you see yourself working in traditional medicine, or more on the entrepreneurial side, as you mentioned, like with this startup company? Um, do you think you might take another stab at that?
1: Yeah, I think I'll do a, a fellowship in clinical informatics. Uh, it's a formal training in um, in this, and I have a little bit of background in clinical decision support. So that's building kind of automating uh, decision making uh, that clinicians do into the EHRs, um, and then I have some experience with remote patient monitoring so using devices that are able to bring in information into the EHR uh, but but I don't have very much info into population health informatics or um, like GIS type stuff so I think uh, a full uh, fellowship would be a strong a strong aspect so I'll do the fellowship and then I think dream job will be working for the, a health information exchange either these companies that transfer health data in between different uh, EHR. So, you know, if you're at this one health system in, in the city and you want to send your records to another health system, I mean, you can have the medical student fax them, but a much better way is using these health information exchanges to, to move the data electronically. So working for a company like that, uh, would be, would be a dream job. Wow. That's crazy. I was, I mean, I have a little excerpt on my
0: resume sometimes that says like, uh, I'm interested in finding solutions to the EMR crisis that physicians are facing. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I didn't even know that these these companies existed. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Kind of what do they do? What How did their role come about? And how prevalent are they? Are they all over America? Are they just starting up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, we don't have a national one. And that is that would be the answer to all of this. If we had a national health information exchange that was responsible for transferring all the data, we wouldn't need all these different uh, uh, silos of of data repeating the same exact tests and stuff. So uh, that, that would be the answer. Right now, we don't have that. So we have these small, local, regional ones that have popped up. And these have popped up through grants uh, that started with um, the High Tech Act, which was part of the ACA, and so they they come in these block grants. So they're not um, the way that they're funded is not very secure. So these health information exchanges uh, they can sometimes start and then five years later they have they have to close down. Uh, the most prominent ones are one in Indiana, the Indiana I think Regional Health Exchange um it's kind of seen as like one of the one of the best the one that we use here in baltimore is crisp uh it's like chesapeake regional information system something p um but it's this whole maryland virginia uh area that that they gather all the data so what basically they do is while everything is stored in the ehr as an icd-10 or something that information isn't Um, organized the same way between all health systems. Even inside of the same health system, when I was in medical school, uh, another school in Chicago, uh, Northwestern, they had Epic for their inpatient and Epic for their outpatient. uh, But those still did not even communicate. Same vendor, same health system. The only difference inpatient, outpatient, they still didn't communicate. So these companies uh, are able to map uh, diagnoses uh, down to these levels and then Transfer them to another health system. So it's a lot of organization. Uh, it's a lot of data manipulation. Um, yeah.
0: On that note, um, <laughs> and I, I, you can choose to answer this or not. What are your thoughts on Epic as you know one of the largest EMR systems in, in America?
1: So as someone who has uh, played around with trying to make third-party kind of add-ons, I it's very frustrating using epic that that's really was the major block in starting this company we had built this cool tool physicians were using it they were liking it but we could not get it integrated into epic epic offers this um uh what is it called it's like um it's called an app orchard and so it's like a an app store and you can add on your third party uh application to epic and then anybody uh that uses Epic can download that and use that tool. They've since stopped supporting that. Um, They're more of a closed system company. So that is frustrating to somebody who's building stuff to try to add on to the EHR. I think think the future of health information technology will still be these big giants controlling the electronic health record, but there's gonna be a lot of small third-party vendors that are gonna be able to add on to that and improve that. Epic doesn't really allow that. You know, Cerner, uh, another big company, uh, isn't very great at that either, but they have a little more functionality. Yeah, that's really interesting.
0: So we've already kind of transitioned and shifted gears to talking more about clinical informatics. Um, And again, kind of for the viewer that might not know too much about it, how would you kind of in broad strokes define it?
1: So I think clinical informatics is the mix between data and technology and healthcare. And how all those things are facilitated uh, and run. Um, I, I used to think it was really just technology, like digital health, or, yeah, digital health, technology and healthcare mixed together. Um, but the more I'm realizing it is it seems a lot about data and how we organize it and how we manipulate it and how we use it. Uh, the EHRs have done a great job at allowing us to collect lots and lots and lots of information. Um, But we're not really doing a very good job at using that information uh, to improve clinical care uh, and to improve decision making. Um, So I think that's where clinical informatics uh, lends itself. Um, Most prominently, it's these clinical decision support tools that we we talked about. Um, And then kind of more abstractly, it's uh, adding on population health uh, analytic tools um, to to be able uh, for whole health systems to improve health of populations uh, using this data.
0: Great. And kind of in your opinion, what's what's one of the most exciting things going on in clinical informatics right now? I mean, I know we touched on kind of these health exchange programs. Has that been kind of the most interesting for you right now?
1: I think in conjunction with that, one thing that they're doing is gathering these these huge data warehouses of de information. Um, data lakes is what they're even calling them. And then they're allowing people to access that for, uh, for different capabilities. Uh, you could run for research. You could run queries on, on them. Um, health systems could use them to identify where uh, zip codes and the, their patient population could benefit from improved nutrition or uh gym, something like that. So I think this has a huge potential for uh, use, this, this metadata, this de-identified metadata. Um, and I think maybe with like blockchain technology, there's ways that patients could be individually compensated for them participating in this. I mean, I don't see why uh, these patients shouldn't be compensated for you know, a pharmaceutical company making money off uh, their data. So I think there's potential for uh, the wealth to be shared between everybody. But right now, data is becoming our, you know, the number one resource to have. And uh, these data lakes are are huge gold mines of this data.
0: Yeah, and kind of going off of that, are your or sorry, are the data lakes being generated by private healthcare systems, or is it by the health department? Is it a mix? Um, who's kind of building these databases?
1: So it's it's kind of a mix. Um, to some aspect, the public health departments are collecting this um, in ways of like the you could say like the PDMP, the uh, prescription monitoring program uh, that screens yeah for like opioids and stuff. Um, that is a way that public health departments are looking at that. The health information exchanges uh, are starting to collect this information. Um, there's you know more innovative type healthcare systems where they're mixing the payer and the healthcare delivery system like ACOs or clinically integrated networks uh they are financially incentivized to decrease costs and improve health outcomes so they are starting to do this as well
0: nice and kind of backtracking to the comment about blockchain and I'm not an expert on blockchain, and I don't expect you to be either, but maybe you might have some idea. How do you see blockchain, uh, maybe like its integration in the future of like clinical informatics or in health information
1: systems? Do you think that there is a good application there for it? So, yeah, Peter, I guess I got to say, yeah, I'm not uh, an expert on it either. Um, but from my understanding of blockchain, the the way that it works and you're able to track each interaction. And so... A patient's, if their if their health record was part of this blockchain network, it could be tracked back and any use of that data uh, could be att- attributed to the patient. Um, I think both of those would be good ways of tracking the data so we don't lose it and we don't have to repeat tests, um, as well as compensating patients fairly for uh, them part- giving away this data or companies using this data. Um So I don't know the specifics, but I think if somehow the the health record could be integrated into something that everybody could access, uh, but the patient was in charge of and the patient could share it with whoever they wanted. They don't have to share it with anybody. They could only share it with their PCP Um, or if they didn't care, I mean, they could be selling it to pharmaceutical companies and advertising companies and and everybody.
0: Sounds almost like a Black Mirror episode of like an alternate reality where we're like in
1: the future and...
0: (laughs) You yeah, can just
1: sell whatever data. Yeah, we would need to consider the ethics of this stuff first. Yeah,
0: sure, absolutely. We can kind of backtrack a little bit to preventative medicine and your time in residency. What is this year looking like for you? Can you speak more about kind of what your day to day looks like? Um, what are the different rotations that you see? Um, just so that our viewers can kind of have a peek into what the kind of nitty gritty of the residency entails.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so a big part of the residency is a, a MPH, a Master's of Public Health. Uh, some people come into this with that degree, and so they don't end up having to get it. But for everybody else, this is kind of a main staple of the degree. So as a first-year resident, I spent about 50% of my time getting the MPH. Um, I'm doing like a certificate in population health informatics, uh, which is uh, it's cool that the, the school allows that. I I don't know if all the public health programs, uh, have that functionality. So 50% of the time it's, it's reserved for just getting this MPH, um, about another 20% of the time it's clinical. So I, I see patients, um, I worked in like primary care. I've done a little bit of urgent care. I did some like occupational health stuff, um, I worked on like some telemedicine, COVID screening, uh, obesity, weight loss clinics, stuff like that is the, the clinical stuff. So I spent about one day a week uh, seeing patients. And then the other like 30% of time we do like population public health stuff. So I work for the public health department. Um, I were part of the COVID outbreak teams. We go and help long-term care facilities uh, with their like COVID risk mitigation strategies. Um, yeah, there's like mobile vaccine clinics stuff like that, and so this is like a fairly laid back residency compared to some of the other more rigorous ones, especially compared to intern year. I mean, I work eight to five Monday through Friday. I don't work weekends. Um, it is it is a great lifestyle uh, residency, um, but we our moonlighting is still capped at like ACGME limits. So there's lots of opportunity to to get more clinical experience if you want and and make some extra money. It also allows me some more time to, to work on extra projects. So uh, I work for the Hopkins COVID dashboard uh, on the state policies and the, uh, and the vaccine distribution. Um, i built some like clinical decision support tools for some of the clinics I'm working at. Um, I recently got really interested in Twitter bots and trying to use those for healthcare related things. So one of them is just tweeting out uh, state, uh, COVID state policies that are changing Another one I'm working on is uh, we'll retweet uh, clinical guideline updates. So on your Twitter feed, you can just automatically see when whatever USPSTF changes their, changes their guidelines. Um, so the whole residency is really interested and supportive of uh, helping us um, kind of yeah work at that systematic level. Um, so that's, that's what the first year looks like. Second year, you're done with the MPH. So you're just doing rotations. Um, and they do a, a whole load of rotations. They go to public health departments. They, uh, spend some time at payers, uh, either Hopkins, the Hopkins payer, or, um, like an actual insurance company. Uh, they work at the CDC, the, uh, the EIS, uh, it's the, it's like the, uh, epi outbreak investigators or something like that. Uh, WHO People do rotations at the WHO. So uh, a whole load of different, really interesting uh, rotations like doing this during the second year.
0: So, yeah, that sounds like a lot. But also
1: the work-life balance there is
0: super critical. I mean, that sounds awesome to be able to have that flexibility. And still, like the fact that your residency is encouraging you to kind of go do these projects and um, explore different topics is is something that you know, from the first four years of medicine, it's very traditional, very kind of uh, rigid and seeing that flexibility or at least the possibility of that flexibility in the future in residency is incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Um, so to end, I guess we can just ask you kind of what is one piece of advice that you've received from a mentor or individual that you'd like to pass on and share to our viewers?
1: I guess the the, the best the piece of advice I've thought a lot about is I had a, um, a mentor. He was He was doing research on Edward Silla Ictalui, which is like similar to Salmonella, but it's a lot more niche and it mainly infects fish. This is like pre-medicine. But he said, uh, Taylor, if if you want to be the best at something, like you either have to be like really competitive and really smart and really lucky and really hardworking, like the absolute best, or you can pick a very niche field uh, where there's less competition and uh, less people to compare you to. And uh, I've find that I'm gravitating towards those things, uh, with both preventive medicine and clinical informatics, uh, both of these, uh, are emerging and I think are not super well-defined. And I think there's lots of opportunities in them. Um, and I think they're ripe for, uh, people coming in and bringing new ideas. So, um, I guess any advice that I could pass on would be, uh, to consider niche things. because If you can get good at one niche thing, uh, you can really set yourself apart.
0: Yeah, that is really great advice. And uh, thank you so much for taking time today to uh, sit down and talk more about this. I think this has been really informative for me personally, but also I'm sure for our viewers. So um, I really appreciate that.
1: Absolutely. I'm happy to be here. And and we were talking earlier, you know, I didn't get very much experience or learn much about this in medical school. I think this is a really important field for medical students, especially to be exposed to but residents as well. So I would encourage everybody uh, to look for a preventive medicine rotation if if one is available. Even uh, residents um, uh, can do a rotation like that. Yeah, Hopkins, they they offer it. So I know other programs do as well. So I encourage anyone to keep an open mind.
0: This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Edward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. This episode was produced, hosted, and edited by Peter Samuel. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. This is PRN.